Welcome to Global Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. Jessica Stern was a mid-level staffer in Bill Clinton's National Security Council when Hollywood literally came calling. If you've seen the film The Peacemaker, starring George Clooney and Nicole Kidman as Jessica Stern, then you've seen a fictionalized version of her work as a nuclear security analyst in the mid-1990s. More recently, Jessica Stern has studied terrorism, and she's published some really groundbreaking research on what motivates individuals to become terrorists, and this was based on interviews she conducted with actual terrorists. Her newest book, called ISIS State of Terror, co-authored with J.M. Berger, takes a deep dive into the intellectual and historical origins of the so-called Islamic State, and we kick off our conversation with a discussion about ISIS and her new book before we take a longer dive into her life and career, and she tells some really interesting and fantastic stories along the way. Uh, If you're new to the podcast, thanks for tuning in. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to download the app or subscribe to iTunes, and I just want to give a quick shout out to our longtime listeners out there. Thank you so much for your support. I love hearing from you. Send me an email anytime via the website with ideas for the show and any other questions or comments you might have for me. I read them all. Thank you so much for sending them. And here is my conversation with Jessica Stern. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Uh, ISIS comes out of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. ISIS came to the attention of many Americans when it started beheading foreigners, but it's really just an iteration, the evolution of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which was the most brutal part of the Al-Qaeda franchise. Uh, Zarqawi was the leader, the the founder and and leader of Al-Qaeda in Iraq until 2006 when he was killed by U.S. airstrikes. He specialized in beheading, and he also filmed his beheadings. But the, the production values were low, and ISIS the successor organization really improved on Zarqawi's efforts. Um, It's just repulsive to most of us, but apparently some people find it appealing. There's always going to be like a a subset number of people who are, you know, have maybe sadistic impulses who are attracted to those kind of snuff videos, right? Apparently so, yes. So what does your your new book um, contribute to the growing literature about ISIS, where it came from, uh, what to do about it? I would say that we go into the the nature of ISIS itself much more than, say, Patrick Coburn. He wrote a brilliant book about the politics of Iraq and Syria. I mean, he's a longtime reporter from the region. 
our book is quite different in that it really looks at ISIS itself. And in addition, we do cover ISIS's social media presence quite extensively. And we also look at ISIS's apocalyptic vision, um, which I, I don't think any other book does. There was a piece in the Atlantic Monthly that that covered that issue. Uh, I draw a different conclusion, though, uh, from the piece in the Atlantic Monthly. I, while I agree with almost every point made in that article about ISIS's use of the apocalypse, its attraction to uh, to those who actually believe they will witness the Mahdi, the end. Yeah, of can time. you actually just describe like what like the eschatology of ISIS looks like? Yeah. Um, it's funny, a lot of of my Muslim friends think, what are you talking about? We don't have any end times, apocalyptic uh, narrative in Islam, and especially in Sunni Islam. But that says a lot about them. It says a lot about them, ordinary Muslims, and it says a lot about ISIS. The, uh, the Muslim eschatology, Sunni Muslim eschatology, is apparently, I'm, I'm not an expert on early Islam by any means, but I found the, the few people that are, they cobbled together a little bit from different sources, including not just Islamic texts, but also the Bible, the book of Revelation, and also uh, narratives about flying saucers I'm told so because the Quran is not an apocalyptic text those who are really interested in the apocalypse have have pulled together this narrative and ISIS is really using that narrative and when people are skeptical about this I just suggest have you read Dabiq which is the English language magazine of ISIS, the name Dabiq comes from the town in Syria where ISIS believes some of the action during the end of time will take place, including in some uh, versions, uh, the final battle. And so, so that kind of, it has that kind of apocalyptic, there will be one final battle vision of, of the end of times. Yes, and indeed they believe that it will be partly sectarian. They anticipate that there will be a battle between Sunni and Shia and also between ISIS and Rome, which many people interpret as the West. And is you know there's this kind of like split in like Christian apocalyptic visions between like those who think that's going to happen like at some point in the far distant future and those who's going to happen in like the near term. Are these kind of like the near term people? Yes, very near term. But there's also a split among messianic apocalyptic Christian thinkers. Some believe that they can actually hurry up the return of the Messiah. They can, they can take action, usually violent action that will actually affect the timetable of the end of the world. This is not the case for in Muslim eschatology, but it may as well be um, because they believe that there are uh, 
minor signs that the end time is near and major signs. And they get very excited when they think that they are fulfilling that apocalyptic prophecy. They, it get, so they, they want to fulfill that prophecy, even though there's no real story that would say that if we kill persons in this particular way, then the end time will come more quickly. The way yeah. there is in some yeah. Christian versions. You know, I, I'm an old uh, comparative religion major. I could talk to you about this stuff for hours, I think. Oh, um, well, and I... I love it. Please uh, speak about, up. Was it pre-millennial dispensationalism and, and all that? Oh, man, you're bringing me back to the early 2000s <laughs> when I was in college. But uh, I, maybe we'll kind of switch gears because uh, you've had like a, a really uh, interesting and fascinating career in international affairs uh, that I would love to learn more about. Um, definitely excited to check out your book for sure. Um so uh, let's maybe turn back the clock uh, a little bit, not necessarily to the uh, beginning of times, but at least to uh, the start of, of your like intellectual you know, development. I, I, where are you from? I really know nothing about you. I, I grew up in a little town called Concord, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. A little bit famous town. Yes, indeed. Um, Especially for historians and political scientists. What was your, your family up to at the time? Uh, my my father was working at an MIT defense laboratory called Lincoln Laboratory. And my mother died uh, when she was very young and when I was very young. And I had a couple stepmothers. But um, my father was my main parent. And, so. and what kind of uh, like lab work was he doing? Was he a, he's a physicist or something, I would presume? He's a solid-state physicist uh, who worked on... Um, mostly defense-related, uh, work, mostly defense-related work. Lincoln uh, Lab is a, a defense-related lab, mm-hmm, like height of the Cold War stuff, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, uh, my understanding, you, you yourself got into the hard sciences, right? Were you- I did. I did. I I always wanted to be a writer, and I didn't do well in my English literature class. I, w- I was sure I would be a writer, uh, whereas chemistry, I did well. Um, and it was also very comforting that the equations balance, both in math and, and science. And so I, I went in that direction. I, my undergraduate degree is in chemistry, and I have a master's in technology policy um, it, when it comes to fundraising, as far as MIT is concerned, I'm a chemical engineer. <laughs> but, oh, okay. Um, so you, you, uh, you went to MIT as well? Yes, and then I did my I, – I, I kept moving in the direction of policy. Finally, I did my doctorate in, in public policy. Well, so I, I mean, just presume it's fair to say that your, your dad had a pretty big influence on, on that outcome? Um, yeah, I'm sure, yeah. I mean, I'm sure that – that the, the attraction to uh, science, yeah, it was probably, I don't know if it's genetic or whether it's just being around scientists. So why like science for policy's sake as opposed to like science for science's sake? I, I was planning on getting a PhD in chemistry um, at Columbia and at the 
last minute I heard about this very weird program at MIT that allowed people to sort of transition, usually from engineering, uh, into policy or something not quite so technical. Um, and I, I heard about it at the last minute. I applied at the last minute, and I got in. But I really was on my way to become a, a chemist. Uh, and so what was your, like, Ph.D. focus at MIT? Uh, my, well, I did my PhD actually at Harvard, oh, and okay. it was on chemical weapons and also the possibility that terrorists could use chemical weapons. Um, so it was on chemical weapons in general, but I did have a chapter on terrorism. So my interest in terrorism goes way back. So what? So what? I guess what about the chemical weapons? And it was this probably like in the early '90s, I'm guessing. Um, when yes. You're, when you're doing your PhD, so I'm trying to think of like. What did the I, chemical weapons landscape look like back then? Well, there was a big debate about the chemical weapons convention, but honestly, I think I fell into it because I, you know, had a chemistry background and I wanted to work on national security affairs, and um, so that's what I ended up working on. I was very slowly meandering in the direction of. of uh, policy, national security policy without, without science. Um, and, and, so, and also writing actually. What kind of writing were you doing at the time? I was doing, you know, right after I finished my doctorate, I ended up as a postdoc in intelligence at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. And I did a lot of writing in that capacity on policy issues related to terrorist uh, access to weapons of mass destruction. So, I mean, at the time, is this like, is the main concern that, you know, with the Soviet Union having like recently dissolved that, you know, any safeguards to protect, uh, you know, weapons of mass destruction in the, you know, peripheral, you know, to the Soviet Union were, were you know, maybe less than robust or not as robust as they should be? Was that absolutely, like the main absolutely. Yeah, I, ha I mean, I had to work on, because I was working in a government facility, and after that I was at the National Security Council, I had to work on the, the policy issues of the day um, using what I knew about. And so people, you know, asked me, to to work on those issues and in, in fact they when i was at the nuclear weapons lab i i had to expand my uh into nuclear matters <laughs> because um that's what they wanted me to work on so i so, well, like, i had well, to learn about that can you just i mean talk a, like a little bit about what like the nightmare scenario looked like back then in terms of like you know like how, what was like the most plausible route for a terrorist group to obtain a weapon of mass destruction that you were like kind of working through? Well, they, we, we were really worried that, that they might actually get a weapon. Um, but that, that would be the, the, the best way for them to pull off a nuclear scenario. Um, but we also, were in some ways more worried about access to nuclear materials, even though it, it might be harder for them to pull together a weapon without a lot of help. 
um, the weapons were much better protected than the materials. The materials for a period after the breakup of the Soviet Union were were extraordinarily badly protected. So um, that that was the issue. I mean, where was I having trouble sleeping because I was afraid of nuclear terrorism? No, not at all. But it was something that needed to be fixed. The the protection. What were the groups in the like early to mid nineteen nineties that you were most concerned about? At that time, I was more concerned about the materials getting on the market than any particular group. And it was only over time that I got curious about the groups. When I was working in the government, I, I really had to focus on the the protections of the materials. Um, and so when did you make the, the move uh, to the National Security Council? I got an International Affairs Fellowship through the Council on Foreign Relations, and uh, which is a great way to end up in the government. And it was incredibly exciting to be at the National Security Council. Um, and that's what I worked on, nuclear, the nuclear smuggling. Like how much, I mean, so I'm thinking like, you know, mid 1990s, the big um, like issues, you know, facing the Clinton administration are probably like Bosnia and, and the Balkans um, amid like, you know, other kind of, you know, the economic, global economic liberalization, that sort of thing. Like, were you kind of like in a bureaucratic backwater? Like how much attention was there to your kind of niche area? I, I was completely in a bureaucratic backwater and that's why I was able to work on this issue. Uh, there Will you explain were people, that a little bit? Sure. Um, you know, I was a, kind of a naive. I had finished my doctorate, spent a couple years in with some serious nerds out in a nuclear weapons design lab uh, that has a intelligence division. Um, I'd never been in in any place like the National Security Council. I didn't really know what I was doing in terms of the interagency process. And there was this issue that really was not being closely watched, and that was the security of nuclear materials. The Office of Science and Technology Policy was working on that issue. So John Holdren was very interested in it. Matt Bunn, who's now at Harvard, still working on exactly these issues. Um, they really, especially Matt, really helped me come up to speed. I really wanted to work on the issue. I was in the right place to organize the interagency. And it, it was a backwater issue for, for quite a while. So it, it, it made it possible for somebody like me to try to push the issue forward. Otherwise, you know, if, it, if I'm working on the Balkans, how, nobody would ever let me do that. <laughs> um, so it was, uh, you know, as you described it, and I described it as, as a bureaucratic backwater at the time, but then like Hollywood came calling, right? Can you explain or tell that story, which I think is, is totally fascinating. I was tooling around your website and I was like, ah, this makes perfect sense now. How did <laughs> the, the, the peacemaker story uh, come together from your perspective? Well, like, I, where were you when you got a call that said Hollywood's going to make a wants to make a movie about what you do? <laughs> well, the first thing that happened is that NSC 
press office asked me to speak with some journalists and they warned me and said they're really, really good journalists and they're probably going to try to trash the Clinton administration's approach to nuclear material security and uh, we want you to talk to them. And I did and I didn't think, I thought I did okay. I mean, I thought they really were prepared to trash the the government, the administration, and I thought they walked away, Leslie Coburn walked away thinking that we were paying attention to the issue. And then, gosh, I don't know how much longer after that, I got a call, um, or my secretary got a call from DreamWorks Studio. And this was, they had just started, and I I had no idea who DreamWorks Studio was. It sounded like an underwear company. I mean, I <laughs> I just didn't know. And when I made it clear that I wasn't sure who they were when I called back, I think it was as if somebody said to me, I've never heard of the White House. I mean, obviously for them, and, and since then, DreamWorks has, everybody knows what DreamWorks is. Spielberg. Right, yeah. right. Um, yeah. And so... The writer wanted to come and see me and visit the Situation Room. And so, you know, the first thing I did was talk to the lawyer. And then I had no idea that that he meant the film was about me. He didn't tell me that until he took me to the Four Seasons and showed me the treatment, which was about Jessica Stern. So then I had to go back to the NSC attorney and say, what do I do now? <laughs> I was, I had no idea how the film would turn out. For all I knew, it would be, again, trashing the administration or um, they'd try to use me to, in some negative way. Um, I made the lawyers do everything with me. I mean, I was so afraid of making a mistake. Um, but, of course, they thought it was just the greatest thing. They loved it. That's great. Uh, yeah, they loved it. And we had Is the... Nicole Kidman's character in the film named Jessica Stern? No, I forget the name of the character. That I got an attorney and they changed the... I, I wanted them to disguise me because <laughs> I, I didn't know how the film would turn out. And I didn't tell very many people, although everybody at the NSC, of course, knew. But I didn't tell my colleagues after that. I was out at um, Hoover at Stanford. Um, I, I just didn't know what this would mean for my career. And it's, you know, it's very few people know about it. So, I mean, you apparently. Have, do you think it had like an effect any, you know, one way or the other? No. No. no, it it what you know it was a little moment in time. Very few mm -hmm. people saw the movie. It was, it was the movie film. came out too early. I I think it was had it come out after nine eleven, it would have gotten a lot more attention. Mm -hmm. uh, did you ever visit the set or like how involved were you in in like the process? I did. It I did. I mean, for me, it was a lot of fun. It was nerve wracking, but it was fun. So I got to meet um, Nicole Kidman and George Clooney, and I was asked to go and, and t quote, teach Nicole how to, how to uh, disable a nuclear device. And I explained that I had absolutely no idea how to do that, but the journalists ended up coming That's up with some funny. plan. 
So, um, but it, it, yes, it was like, it was a complete lark. It was so, it was an adventure, bizarre adventure. And in the end, I just decided if, if life offers you strange adventures, maybe once just take them, not always be so serious all the time. It was fun. So did you stay in the NSC for the duration of the Clinton administration? No, um, I ended up, um, my now ex-husband wanted to go back to UC Berkeley and we went back to California. So I just, it's not that I, I love the job and I, I left at the end of my fellowship only because we had to go back to California. It wasn't for any other reason. Um, so just kind of looking at your, your body of work, I think I probably first came to like know who you were when I was a research assistant for Peter Bergen, like back way back in like you know, 2003 um, for mm-hmm. your writing on, on terrorism. But you're, you're sort of telling me about, you know, most of your work at up to a certain point seemed to deal a lot more with like nuclear issues. When did that kind of switch happen? Like when did you start focusing on, um, you know, like Islamic terrorism in particular? Well, I never really focused in particular on Islamic terrorism. I, my, my first book was on the possibility that terrorists could get access to weapons of mass destruction, and that came out in 99. And then I, I got more and more curious about the people who want to use the weapons. In fact, I, I, I studied someone who acquired Yersinia pestis to produce plague, to use plague as a weapon. Um, Also, a group that had thought about using cyanide as a weapon. And I, while I was studying them, I just thought, well, what if I talk to them? And at the time, that was just unheard of. Journalists do that. And, but somebody who, is supposed to be a scholar is, you know, supposed to do the work in the library, not go and talk to the terrorists. And I, I realized that I had absolutely no training to do it. I mean, I'm, I'm not a trained as a reporter. I'm not trained as an anthropologist or as a psychologist, but although I, at this point I've studied quite a bit of psychoanalysis, but that was before that. Um, I, I just got curious and I, you know, I, Again, that it's something I, I was following my passion, not thinking about my career tra- trajectory. But I was so curious once I started talking to them that I just couldn't resist and I kept doing it. Um, you know, it's the kind of thing that Peter Bergen, of course, that's how he'd research the problem. The data were so bad, the data available to terrorism scholars were so bad that it really made sense to go collect your own data. So data are better now. But um, even so, you know, I was definitely uh, subject to the claim that my work was journalistic, which um, is not a compliment (laughs) coming from political scientists, whereas calling someone a political scientist if you're a journalist is also not a compliment. So... um, yeah. So who cares? <laughs> yeah. So so like, what did your what did you find out from from talking to to these individuals? Like, what was your big your your kind of big takeaways? I, and what I was did. and what's it like to talk to someone like that? Like, how do you like how does that even happen? Like, ha, like how do you arrange an interview? Before nine eleven, 
it was incredibly easy. Um, I started out in the United States talking to Christian, well, people who call themselves Christians, identity Christians um, who are also neo-Nazis and millenarian apocalyptic thinkers. Um, I went to Texas. Uh, I started out in the U.S. and then I went to Pakistan and I spent a lot of time going back and forth to Pakistan. That's where I made the most inroads. And it was completely hit and miss who I got to meet. It was nothing. Had I, my, my main contact there is a wonderful man named Ahmed Rashid. Uh, if he had been taking care of me the whole time, I never would have gotten access to the jihadis that I met. But his wife's mother got sick and he had to take off and left me uh, in Lahore uh, where I was supposed to be essentially babysat by him. And while I just happened to meet a pro-jihadi reporter who was as fascinated by me as I was by him. He'd never talked to an American. He'd never seen a Jew because he asked me and I admitted my crime, which was that I'm Jewish. Yeah. Um, and the, so the good I thing was, about it is, is that they don't necessarily like intuitively know that Stern is a Jewish last name. Uh, they don't. And yeah. they looked at me and, you know, apparently they, for them, I didn't look Jewish because the Jew, a Jew looks like the devil. So, um, it, I was, very exotic, and they were also very anxious to, to I think, in some ways, get more famous. Um, they, the Pakistani jihadi groups who were working with bin Laden, weren't really getting that much attention. So they really wanted something from me, even as I wanted something from them. So, and I wanted to tell their story, how they saw the world, which. I thought was important for us to understand if we are going to fight them. And of course I got some pushback for that. Um, as if was there I were any, like one interview or one moment in one interview that sort of stands out to you as being like a, a crystallizing moment. Yeah. I, I think, um, my interview with Fazla Rahman Khalil, who he was the head of Harkat al-Mujahideen and was very good friends with bin Laden. And it took me a long time to get to meet him. Um, he, I suppose what happened was eventually the Pakistan's intelligence agency, the ISI, actually wanted me to meet with him or it wouldn't have happened. Um, I mean, it took, I think it took a couple of years before I got to meet with him. Um, and we were just chatting and he was telling me we have no camps in Afghanistan and the the party line that I assumed had been pre-approved by the ISI. And then I just came into my head that I should ask him if he was married. And he told me that he had just married his second wife, the first one he had farmed out to his parents. And um, I asked, could I meet her? And he said, yes. And then I got to see his home, which was completely different from his office. It was He lived in a giant mansion. He had a Saudi wife, a very young woman whom he'd met on fundraising missions to Saudi Arabia. And she spoke perfect English. And I got to see how much money this guy was making from the so-called jihad. That was really interesting. Um, and... I also met someone who had quit 
this organization, this man's organization, in part because he realized that the leader was making money off jihad. He, he realized that the rules didn't necessarily apply to the leaders, but only the cannon fodder. Um, and so did, what were like the big conclusions from, from all these interviews that you drew about like, you know, what attracts an individual to this kind of, of cause? Well, the, the big theme for me, the, the standout revelation for me was, was how much the word humiliation came up in, in my interviews. And it was the West has humiliated Islam. Islamic civilization has fallen behind, but it's the West's fault. And the West is deliberately humiliating Muslims and Muslim-majority countries and Islam. And when I first started talking about that, it was really shocking to people. Um, but I think it's now common, you know, everybody views it that way. And once when I was talking, someone asked Lawrence Wright, do you agree with Jessica? This was years after I'd been doing the research. And he said, yes, of course. I mean, everybody talks about it. It's not, it doesn't take great uh, expertise to figure this out. They talk about it all the time. You just have to go there, talk to them. Um, and so uh, you, you conducted these research, you put it together in, in uh, your book. I guess, how, how was that book received? I mean, what uh, did it, did you, did it have any like, you know, direct policy implications um, that people picked up on uh, in any sort of noticeable way? Well, it was it was less the book than an op-ed I wrote the very day the book came out. Um, I wrote an op-ed saying that we had turned Iraq into a terrorist state that had that it hadn't been a terrorist state, state but that w our invasion was was creating an opportunity for Al Qaeda, and that op-ed got so much attention, not so much for me, but for the idea. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was asked to respond to the idea. Um, Paul Bremer was asked to respond to the idea. Uh, but I was not involved. <laughs> so it, and it, 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 the premise, the idea and this was what, in like 2004, 2003? So the idea was that the um, conduct of U.S. troops... Um, might the presence sort of, of U.S. or, or the, just the mere presence of a foreign occupier um, might lead to situations in which, like this humanitarian, the, the the humiliation, like impulse, might be you know stoked. Yes, and terrorism would be stoked, mm -hmm. and this brings us right back to ISIS because that was the the beginning of ISIS. Um, could you? I mean. Knowing what you know about like the history of of ISIS um, and and you know Al Baghdadi and and Zakari, Zar, Zakari, I said almost said Zawahiri uh, Zarqawi. Yeah, everyone does that. Uh, um, like like are there moments in their biography that you know of where like this humiliation you know occurred that that you know you can point to that sort of you know gave rise to like the you know subsequent uh, groups that they led. Well. You know, I, I don't want to take this too far, but it is true that Zawahiri was imprisoned and some accounts suggest that he was sexually humiliated in prison. In he was Egypt, tortured. Right? Yes, in Egypt. Yeah. 
And this Zarqawi. is this was uh, Zarqawi is it was uh, Bin Laden's number two. Yes, and now the leader of Al Qaeda, Zarqawi, uh, was a really bad student. <laughs> he was a criminal. He spent quite a bit of time in prison. Uh, he decided that he was going to clean up his act by joining a, a Muslim revivalist organization called Tablighi Jamaat. And that was a kind of entry into uh, jihad for him. Uh, he went to Afghanistan. But he, he started out as a person who really, he was covered in tattoos. He was basically a thug who had 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 a pretty tough uh, upbringing in in that he just wasn't succeeding uh, at anything other than criminality. So it's not, you know, of course the word humiliation, it's a feeling. Anybody can be humiliated. One person's, you know, is humiliated by a bee sting. <laughs> Another worries about civilizational humiliation. I think there's a narrative about civilizational humiliation that is particularly attractive to people who, who may feel personally uh, alienated, uh, disenfranchised. That narrative finds a, it, it, it uh, appeals to them. It resonates with those who have their own difficulties. Um, so, uh, just to, to wrap up, you, you have the, you, your new book is out. Congrats on that. Any, anything new on the horizon, new research interests you might want to plug before I let you go? Sure. Uh, my new book, I was not able to interview anyone and I feel that I've honed this, an instrument that I do know how to talk to violent men. So my next project is interviewing more criminals. I, I, I feel I have to talk to these people in jail now. It's just not safe to do what what I once did. Um, but I'm continuing to use that instrument that I honed over all those years. Where in, in jail? Like in jail in, in Iraq or, or in jail? No, in here? Europe. I'm, in I'm Europe. looking at war criminals from the Balkans, actually. Oh, okay. Well, there, there are a few up in, it's a very nice beachside prison they have in uh, The Hague. Yes, the Shevenigan, yes. The Shevenigan <laughs> prison. I worked at the uh, War Crimes Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia for oh. a, a short while. Um, so, yeah, it'd be so interesting. Um, actually, one question. I don't know. I, I, I don't know if you have an answer to this, and I should let you go. But one question I'm, like, kind of – and you're probably ideally suited to, to answer this in your research – is, like, the role of sadism in committing war crimes. You know, like, the literature out there about who commits war crimes and why tends to focus on – individuals being sort of socialized into committing mass atrocities, you know, being you know, dehumanizing the other and, you know, for just following orders and kind of following the crowd. But more and more I'm seeing, you know, instances in which people are just taking like sheer pleasure in inflicting pain and torture on others in a way that seems unique. Well, I, I think that ISIS is attracting that kind of person actually. Um, it would, it's hard to imagine anybody from the West wanting to join ISIS as a jihadist who doesn't know what they're doing. ISIS is saying, come over here, we'll give you a wife, and also you're going to get to participate in atrocities. So, yes, war uh, militias, uh, 
terrorist groups, I would think that sadists are disproportionately represented in these groups, even though not everyone who joins them is a psychopath or a sadist. Um, but ISIS seems to really be deliberately trying to recruit such people. Um, I don't think it's a prerequisite. I think they're probably overrepresented. Unfortunately, we do know that if some people can be trained to do that and shown atrocities perpetrated by the, quote, enemy is, is part of that training. Um, so, so, Jessica, I've, I've kept you a few minutes over. Thank you so much for your time, uh, for sharing your stories with uh, me and, and with the audience. Uh, and I absolutely look forward to checking out your new book. Thank you so much. All right. Well, that was very interesting. Thank you to Jessica. Thank you all for listening. Go check out her book while you're at it. Go check out our robust archive of conversations with foreign policy thought leaders and luminaries. These conversations, like the one you just heard, are pretty timeless in the sense that they are not necessarily terribly news pegs. You can go back and listen to older episodes and hear the life stories and the intellectual development of some of your foreign policy heroes. All right. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye.